James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote a letter to the early church to encourage them in the movement of Jesus. These are practical words reminding us that authentic faith is evidenced by love and good deeds, that the movement of Jesus flows through sacrificial love. When the waves of life become choppy and rough, James teaches us how to endure, how to press in, how to seek wisdom and live for what matters most. Because God is still moving through His church, the timeless words we find on these pages are God's invitation to put faith into action and see how God wants to move through you today. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for moments in our lives particular crossroad moments where we meet with you or through the circumstances where our lives are shaped and molded movements begin. And I pray that God today would be one of those moments for certain people in this room who need encouragement. And so if there's anyone watching online, anyone here in this campus or any of our campuses, God, that um, needs conviction, I pray that you would bring conviction. If someone needs um, affirmation, they're in a season where they've been obedient, God, but it just feels like they've been solo, and they know they're not, but it just feels that way, that they would be affirmed today. God, those who need to be confronted, Holy Spirit, confront them with love, and those who need to be just cheered on, do what you do, God. I thank you that your word is living, and it's active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and cuts through bone and marrow, judges the attitudes of life. And so I pray that your word now would do what it does, that the same passage we're gonna look at that's gonna bring life to some people, like call them to salvation, is the same passage that's gonna call certain other people to sanctification. And so Lord, do what you want through us in this moment. Get me out of the way, God. Let people hear from you in this moment. We pray in your name, amen. We've been uh, studying the book of James together, and today is the very last part of the series. And uh, if you've been a part of the series with us, you know that the book of James is you and I getting to not just peek into a letter that, you know, James wrote a couple of thousand years ago uh, to a church that doesn't have anything to do with us, but really through God's word, God giving you and I the same very mandates uh, through his, you know, just servant. James uh, was the blue-collar scholar, and as the half-brother of Jesus, he kind of grew up his entire life. Can you imagine being Jesus's brother, living with him, seeing him grow up, not really believing that he was the Messiah, but then Jesus lives the perfect life and then dies a sinner's death, and upon his resurrection, he goes and he visits with James, and then James believes. Can you, by the way, imagine that moment where he flashes back at his childhood and flashes back at all these different moments where he was in the vicinity, literally sharing the same room, going through the same chores, being around the same things over and over again as his brother, and now through the lens of knowing he actually was the Messiah, having that flashback and thinking about moment after moment after moment where he's like, wow, I all along got to hang out, got to grow up with the God of this universe. 
And then uh, he becomes a pastor. He matures, then he becomes a pastor. And at this moment uh, that we're reading, he's actually the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, and the 12 tribes of Jerusalem have dispersed. They've scattered because of intense, you know, just persecution. And as they've dispensed, as they've, as they've kind of scattered, uh, you know, they, they're in a moment where there's a lot of trials that are going on, and James is writing them to encourage them. But he's also writing them, if you were here last week, all right, just to kind of tag in from James 4, to remind them who they are as the church and whose they are. And he's saying to them that as you, as you walk out in this moment of scattering and you're, you're kind of going through this hardship, and, and just because of your faith, just because of nothing you've done, but because other people are projecting their sin against you because they're intimidated by our faith, I want you to not lose your way. I want you to remember who you are, remember whose you are. I want you to not not get so mixed up in the clouds that you, you let your emotions get the best of you because there's something that's anchored you that's bigger than the circumstances right in this very moment. And James is writing to them. And as he's writing to them, we now come to the very last part of the letter, and James kind of circles this whole thing back around, boomerangs this whole thing back around, and brings up this one topic that we're going to look at this morning, which is really the topic of patience. James is letting them know that things that they're, they're going to face might get worse before they get better, but it's okay, because despite their circumstances, God desires for them to exercise patience. Now, when I say that word patience, I don't know what comes to mind for you. I don't know if when I say the word patience, you think about your recent trip to the airport. Because whenever I think about the airport, I think about an area where my patience is tried. I don't know if you think about the barista who continues to get your oat milk latte confused. I don't know if you think about the person who promised you, hey, listen, I'm the repairman and I'm gonna come to your house anywhere between nine and three. (laughs) And at 4.30, you were like, was it central time or Eastern time? Because the brother ain't here yet. I don't know if it's the people who get in the fast lane and go slow. I don't mind you going slow, but what are you doing in the fast lane, yo? And I don't know when you think about patience, what you think about. I don't know if you think about the DMV line where you go at your lunch break and there are 95 people and one counter open. And they're taking a check. Who takes a check anymore? Is this 1992? I don't know what you think about when you think about patience. The other day I I turned on uh, Netflix and it tethered. It dared tether for like six seconds. And I was like, it's tethering? I need to watch The Office now. (laughs) And when you think about patience, I don't know about you, but I'm not very patient. But the weird part of it is that God, God looks at the church in a moment like this, the passage that we're about to read, and God says that you actually don't get to hide behind your Enneagram number. And he goes, certain people are more prone to patience, and I'm not. Now, I love the Enneagram, by the way. And, and uh, I also love, like, I'm an INTJ. I, I love, like, all the gifts. I love Strength Finder and all these different things. And they can show you who you are in your nature and your nurture and all those good things. But at the end of the day, God says there's something bigger going on than your personality. And I have an expectation for the church 
right? To be believable, for Christians to be Christ-like. And today, he's gonna confront us in love about patience, but it's not just confrontation for the sake of confrontation. It's confrontation for the sake of affirmation. He wants you and I to be reminded that when we're going through whatever we're going through, where our our patience is tested, where someone is pushing back and, and our leash is getting shorter, when we're so triggered in those moments, there's an expectation that's different for the people of God and the people who are not the people of God. And so, as we study God's word today, just know that this is a letter to Christians. And if you're not a Christian today, you get to be exempt from all the expectations in this passage. But if you are a Christian today, this is for you and for me. James 5, seven to 11. James says, be patient, be patient. Then brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently awaiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, again, over and over again, he's going to brothers and sisters. He's talking about believers becoming believable. He's saying the expectation is lost people act like they're lost, but God's people ought to act differently from the patterns of this world. He says, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And then he gears down to an ancient story that all of these readers would know. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about because God is full of compassion and full of mercy. And so the calling here today, not just for the church, right, 2,000 years ago, but for the church right here in this very moment is to simply be patient. So if you're taking notes, we're gonna look at four essential truths out of these verses, all right, about patience. But before we do that, let's just define it together just so that we're all kind of coming in this with the clarity of the definition of the word patience in a secular way and honestly in a, in a Christian lens as well. If you're taking notes, the secular definition of patience is the capacity to remain tranquil, to remain calm, to remain not so agitated, to remain not triggered. It's the capacity to remain tranquil during delay, during suffering, or adversity. Now, the biblical definition is gonna sound almost the same but front-loaded with a little bit, all right, of a a, a catalyst statement, all right, that's gonna frame the whole thing, but even though it sounds almost the same, is oceans apart. Now, here's the biblical definition. The biblical definition is not just the capacity to remain tranquil during delay, suffering, or adversity. The biblical definition is the God-given capacity. The God-given capacity to remain tranquil during delay, suffering, or adversity. The secular one, don't miss this, is self-generated. The secular one is, is, is internal and you. You being able to muster up the capacity to say, you know, I am going to make sure that when that person at work does not bring the stuff in that they were supposed to bring in, I'm still gonna be patient. I am gonna make sure when my neighbor's dog gets in my garbage again, and puts it all over the yard, that I'm gonna be patient. The the secular definition of patience is self-generated. 
But the Christian definition of patience is spirit-generated. One of them is natural. The other one is so much bigger than natural. The other one, look at me, is a superpower. The other one is supernatural. You and I, as the people of God, are a supernatural being. We are not bodies with a spiritual, you know, nature. We are ultimately spiritual, right? We're not like physical with a spiritual nature. We're, we're spiritual with a physical nature for a little bit of time. And as God's people, James is reminding us that patience is not just a virtue. It's an attribute of God. Patience is a fruit of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit is what? Love, peace, patience, right? Self-control, goodness. When we think about that, the, the evidence, right, of the Holy Spirit in us, what we think about is patience being one of the things that God put in us when God came in. And if God put that in us, then you and I don't get to choose, pick and choose, right? Like which ones we want and which ones we don't want. Uh, if, I, uh, if I take an apple and I bite into an apple, the second I bite into that apple, I get all the juiciness and all the sweetness. I don't get to go, I'm going to bite into an apple, but I only want to taste the graininess the texture, but I don't really want to taste, you know, the saltiness in it. I don't want to taste the, the sodium in it. When you bite into an apple, you get the whole apple. And when you bite into a Christian, when you, when, you, when you walk into the life of a Christian, when you, when you squeeze out because of a circumstance, a Christian, all of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, self, all of it is supposed to exude itself out of our lives. We don't get to pick and go, I'm going on a date with a guy who seems very self-controlled and I'm so happy because I have no self-control and together we'll become the perfect package. You know, I'm gonna go on a date with a guy who's really, really patient and I'm very impatient, and together we can do together what we could never do alone. Like, that is true about personalities, that is true about certain giftings, but it's not really what God is saying about the fruit of the Spirit. Every believer, if you're a believer, will you just wave at me for just a second? Every believer here who has God in them has been given them the gift of patience because God who lives in you is a patient God. God is slow to anger. God is compassionate. I mean, James right here in the passage says all these beautiful things about God. And so if God lives in you, then patience lives in you. And if patience lives in you, patience ought to be oozing out of the circumstances of your days. Amen? Amen. And that is the expectation. It is the fruit of the Spirit. This is an expectation, and that's why there are four essential truths, and the first one is that it is an expectation. Patience is imperative. It's imperative. It is not an option. It is a command over and over again. It's not a suggestion from James, but a command from God's Word right here. Be patient. By the way, he's not saying do patience, because doing is works. It's be Patience, it's who you are. Let it come out. Let it come out. So he's saying, be patient. And it is a command and not an expectation, not a suggestion. Uh, here's a way to sum that up. We'll move on to point number two, all right? Anybody here who's a Christian? Anybody listening who's a Christian? This is the audacity of God, y'all. That the people of God will be you ready for this? Godly. <laughs> the people of God will be godly. They, don't, they won't just be godly when they come to church and sing like worship songs. They'll be, they'll be godly when their next door neighbor, 
right? Pushes up against them and does something that's really rude. They'll be godly when they go to school and, and, and as a student in school, somebody like takes their parking space. They'll, they'll, be, they'll be godly when it takes longer than we were They'll be godly when someone makes a promise and they don't like do good on the promise. They'll be godly, not just whenever it's convenient to be godly. They'll be godly, not just when they go, that's a gift thing. I'm just really naturally bent for it. They'll be godly in all the things that God has put inside of them, equipped them to become. And so First and foremost, patience is imperative. It's not an option. It is an evidence. It is an evidence of a God who lives in you, right? Working himself through you as a supernatural act. And, and again, it's all about the supernatural act of the spirit in and through you. It, I keep going back to that because I just want you to understand. Like left on my own, what's natural looks very different than what's supernatural. Like, I don't know about you, but my natural bent, my natural bent, all right, is uh, like, you mess with me, you mess with me, I'm from Iran, all right, so Middle Eastern blood, all right, so you ready for this? Here's how, here's how it works. You mess with me, I kill your mother. That's how it works. <laughs> that's how it works. You're like, that's it? That's all it takes? Yeah. You mess with me? I kill your mother. That's how it works. And I know you're looking at me like, you don't even look big, dude. I know I'm a tiny little guy, but I got this little Napoleon complex. I'm a little chihuahua, all right? You mess with me, I kill your mother. Like, so like tweet about me, I will tweet a manifesto about you, you know? Say something, I, 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 I will just like, I, I, this is all caps. That's just my natural bent. So my natural bent is you dishonor me, I dishonor you. But my supernatural bent is you dishonor me, I still honor you. You slap me, I turn the other cheek. That's not natural. That's not natural. Natural is an eye for an eye. Supernatural is what? You love people that aren't lovable. That ain't normal. That ain't normal. And that might be all you need to hear right now because some of you are listening to this and you're going, you don't know. How the, how the person I'm sitting with right now is the very person who's, uh, the person I'm with, don't point at him, the person I'm sitting with right now is the very person that is like, whoo, don't be talking to me like, they, they are testing my patience more than anyone else. God has dropped and parachuted this person in my life and I love them but I can't stand them right now. It's the way they squeeze the toothpaste. It's every little, it's the way they smack their gum. Oh, Lord Jesus, help me right now. And in that moment, the natural bent is to let people annoy you. The natural bent is to let people get you. But look at me, when you grow in the walk with God, you build an immune system, a spiritual immune system. And as you grow, the things that used to bug you, the little bitty things that used to trigger you, all of a sudden become things that you can navigate through. Because when you're, when you're an infant in your faith, you throw tantrums like infants do. But when you grow, the expectation is that as you're growing in sanctification, what God made you in justification, you see maturity. Which is why, number two, is not just that patience is imperative, but number two, that patience is cultivated. It's cultivated and not fabricated. James uses this farming illustration because you'll know this if you go to Whole Foods. There are no factories but orchards when it comes to fruits. And orchards are places where things aren't forced. What I mean by that is that it just takes time. You know, if, if I go and get a banana and it's a green banana at the grocery store, I don't get to look at that banana if it's green and go, that's fake, that's not a banana. It's a banana, it's just not ripened yet. 
And when you first come to Christ, when you first become a believer, when you're in the elementary parts of your faith, when you're a baby, the expectation is God has saved this person, but they got some growing up to do, growing in grace, becoming more and more in their behavior by the work of the Spirit, what they became in their position, right? But the expectation is that when you're a baby, that is something you're growing in, but if you're maturing, if you're maturing, anybody here, you've been a Christian more than five years, more than 10 years, more than 25 years. Some of you are so old, Jesus was like literally in your youth group. You know, you remember when they built the ark and you all got in and it wouldn't stop raining or whatever. But if you've been a Christian for a long, long time, the, 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 the idea is that like wine, you've gotten better, right? Through tests and trials, through growing in your faith, all of a sudden you're not a tender shoot anymore in the orchard. You're a righteous oak. You're not a baby anymore. Those are foundational, fundamental, I mean, things that, that kind of built your, your early days, but now you've grown. And so the things that when you were a tender shoot, little things would bend you. But as you grew the trunk of your faith, now the things that would bend you don't bend you anymore. And God is expecting that from us. I, I've got this granddaughter. Her name is Avery. And uh, if you follow me on Instagram, all I basically do now is just post about Avery, all right? You know, and, and it's just, I just, she's just so cute. Her cheeks exceed her face. She's just the, the sweetest, cutest, most perfect little granddaughter ever. Yesterday, we were at the fall festival, the pumpkin fall festival, just walking around. And she had her whole hand wrapped around my, my little pinky. And we were just kind of walking and I was slowly walking. And as we were walking, I looked at her mom and dad and I said, have we, have we figured out yet whether, you know, she's ready to, to go to the wedding? Because because my daughter's getting married in June and uh, she's decided to have a destination wedding and her destination is literally Cape Town, South Africa. And so she's decided, and I love this, this is gonna be awesome, uh, because he is the guy she's in love with is from South Africa, so there's a reason for that. She didn't just randomly like close her eyes and like point to a map, all right? But, but, but she, she died because for all these good reasons, but, and everybody's super excited and we're all thrilled and, and we also chose with her. It wasn't just her that we wanted South Africa, but, but here's the reality. Like one leg, there's three legs to the flight. One leg, the one leg from Atlanta to South Africa is 16 and a half hours. So I'm holding Avery's pinky yesterday and we're walking around downtown Franklin and I looked at her mom and dad and I said, hey, we thought of any more about this flight because I'm, I, I'm the dad who's got to buy all the tickets, right? <laughs> and I got to pull the trigger now. Like I got to buy these tickets. And so I, I, I don't want to buy, because I'm like, hey, before we get on a plane and we bring basically a two-year-old on a plane for 17 hours, is she capable? And so we were talking about that and this and this and this. And, and my answer was like, I don't know, like, put a little Jack Daniels in the bottle. Not, not that, you know. <laughs> I'm Southern Baptist, I'm sorry. NyQuil, which is Jack Daniels, all right? And then liquid dye number four. But, you know, I was, I was like, can we, can we drug this baby for a little while? And her mom is super, super, like, organic and all that. She's like, no, you know, and so that option's gone, you know, uh, and, and all these things. And so, so as we were talking through it, nobody was mad at her. You know, I didn't, like, all of a sudden look at her and go, I can't believe that this is an issue we have to even, because when she's a baby, there's an expectation of, like, a baby's going to get hungry and cry. A baby's going to get tired and, and cry. A baby's going to wet their eyes and cry. Like the expectation for a baby is that if she was 16 and we were having that conversation, she would be a brat. But she's not 16. She's 16 months, not 16 years. 
And so what I'm saying to you is that if you are a believer and you've been walking with God, spiritual maturity doesn't look like I have memorized a bunch of Bible verses. Spiritual maturity actually looks like next Tuesday, you're not mean. You're nice. If your theology has made you mean, you're reading the wrong theology, you know? And think about the last two years as we've gone through like just all the things that have just bubbled up, you know, in our world. Think about all the political stuff that's just made so much tension to our world. And think about like, are you a vaxxer or non-vaxxer? Are you a Trumpy or non-Trumpy? Are you a... I think about all the different things that, that should be something that we as believers elevate through and are loving through and don't let it snag the sweater of our faith, but we have let these things hijack us. And it's one thing when lost people act like that. It's another thing when baby Christians act like that. But some of us have been Christians for years and someone dares disagree with us on something, and instantly we are so mean to one another. And God is saying, you're better than that. Whenever somebody says that now, it just feels demeaning. You're better than that. But, but God's not meaning it in a demeaning way. He's literally meaning it as like, you literally are, because you, I live in you, you literally are so much. I believe more in you than you believe in yourself. Isn't that amazing? So it's not just that patience, you know, is imperative, but that it's cultivated. And it's interesting too, y'all, that he uses the example of Job, because if you know anything about the story of Job, you know that that is not smooth sailing from beginning to end. If you know anything about the story of Job, God sees Job as a faithful person, and then he allows trials and adversity and hardship and suffering to come upon his life. And as he does that, as he puts him in, into this moment of like allowing in this broken world to broken, for brokenness to, to, to come into his life, what happens in that moment is, is Job gets it really, really right in the beginning, but then it, the, the heat keeps turning up and turning up and turning up. And eventually we get to a place in Job's story where Job is questioning and Job is pushing back and Job even wants an audience with God because he's just mad at God but eventually by the end he perseveres and so every season or every orchard has winters and, and God knows that like and this might be the big takeaway for some of you that like some of you just need to be patient with yourself you need to be patient with patience <laughs> because in the ebb and flow of it all God is not looking for you and I like Job here, God is not looking for you and I to be perfect. He's just looking for you and I to keep growing and to pursue. And so patience is imperative and patience, right, is cultivated. But patience is also personal. It's inside out, but it eventually gets out. It's personal, but it's not private. James says, quit grumbling at one another. He's saying, if you love me, you can't love me and hate others. You can't worship me, right? But yet have a real disdain for others. You can't love God and not love people. Because when you love God, you love what God loves. When you love God, you love who God loves. When you love God, you're patient with who God is patient with. And so all God is saying is the same God who has been patient with me is saying, I've been patient with you and I want you to extend through you the same patience I extended to you. And brothers and sisters, 
I think our finest hours are upon us in the next few years because this is, let's just be honest, I think we have our finest opportunities, our greatest moments in our lifetime before us in the next few years because I think things are gonna get a whole lot worse. I think um, as we've been afforded technology and as we've been afforded advancements, we have now become so addicted to convenience. And when all that starts to like unravel a little bit as we walk into a recession and we're now like leaning on technology that's not really ready and might crash and all these different things. I, 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 this, is, this sounds weird, but I think the next few years in this world are gonna look really, really scary. We're about to walk into a, a lack of employment. We're about to walk, it's about to get a lot worse before it gets better. And I think when that happens, you and I as the church, hopefully because we built an immune system to not lose it, get to be the person who gets to shine the brightest in the darkness. And people will know us. They'll know us. They'll say everyone else lost it at work, but that person didn't. There were layoffs and four people lost their jobs and three of them walked out cussing, but one of them, they weren't happy about losing the job, but it didn't rob them of their internal joy because he came from a different source. And I think as things get worse, and I pray I'm wrong, as things get worse, what a great opportunity for this to be our finest hour. As the needs rise, what an opportunity for us to to enhance our witness. And so patience can't just be personal. It is. It has to also, all right, not be private. And what an opportunity for us to be loving. And last... It's simply this, patience is faithfulness. It's faithfulness, faithfulness in God's promises. Because listen, in God's definition of faithfulness, we get God's given gifting to us to have the capacity, all right? Knowing this, that when we get to the end, there's good news waiting. That's what James says when he says, be patient until his return. In the world's definition, it's be patient, self-motivated, patience with a question mark at the end of whether things are going to get better or not. You can be patient waiting on the girl who might never come to you. You can be patient waiting on the promotion that you'll never get here in the Christian world. You can be patient and if you don't get that promotion, it's okay because your identity was not wrapped around your job and your title. And all of a sudden, we have something bigger, our bigger prize. What's at the end is that we win, beloved. We win. We are the people of God, and one day he will come back for us. And one day, one day, we've endured through suffering. We've endured through hardship. We've endured through setbacks, and all of these setbacks were setups for us to be a witness, for us to be worshipers that were vocal in the way that we lived our lives, vocal in the way that, that we loved, vocal in the way that we showed kindness in the midst of uh, the, the way we were honorable. And in the middle of all of that, there's a moment when we go, and the great prize is that there will be a day when Jesus will come and he will make all things new. Amen. No more tears, no more difficulty. What does it look like to know we win at the end? So because you know you win at the end, when you're going through affliction, you go, this is just a temporary affliction. We win at the end, so because you know you're going at the end, you lose in the moment, and you go, I, must, I might lose this battle, but I'm a war already won. <laughs> What's that look like? It looks like us going to the promises of God and saying, I'm, 
I'm a, I'm a guy who in the very middle of this moment, in the winter season of this moment, know that spring is coming, that life is coming. And I hang on to your promises because I know that in this moment, this temporary affliction moment, in this moment of hardship, in this moment, people are watching me, but I can endure because there's a prize at the end. The farmer endures the sowing because he knows the harvest is coming. And guys, the harvest is coming for us. If we really believe that, if our hearts were set towards heaven and we really believe that, we wouldn't let things in this world matter as much as we let them matter. My brother Benjamin um, was fearfully and wonderfully made before he passed away about two and a half years ago. He was the greatest Christian I knew. Uh, God made Benjamin um, with Down syndrome. And so he was just so unique. Benji, if you know anything about people who have Down syndrome, Benji was very passionate and single-minded about things. Down syndrome kids typically love to have rhythm in their life. And so once they like something, they really like something. And once they don't like something, it's really, really hard to get them to like it ever. And Benji loved Jesus. Benji read his Bible every single day for about an hour, systematically, just, just religiously. Like Benji was committed. That was, that was the, the, the strong side of who he was. Benji loved Jesus. He was out loud about his faith. I mean, any, anytime you met Benji, he would talk to you about your faith. Benji would go to Barnes and Noble and literally go as a missionary to Barnes and Noble and in three hours would witness to three or four people. He would go to a football game and talk about God. He would go to anywhere Benji went. If you met Benji, he would ask you about your walk with God. He would talk to you about Jesus. He would buy you a meal, a Chick-fil-A. And while you were eating, he would just witness to you about like the reason this place is closed on Sundays is because they go to church. Are you going to church? I mean, Benji would go to Burger King and go, king, who's the king of your heart? You know, and, and he'd go in the bathroom. Somebody used the bathroom. He'd knock on the He needs to flush your heart out. I mean, Benji was a walking <laughs> witnessing machine. Anything that dared move, Benji was like, opportunity for the Great Commission. And he just loved, Benji loved Jesus. Also, by the way, Benji loved country music. <laughs> he loved them some country music. He loved Jesus and he loved George Strait. <laughs> At a distant second, but he loved them some George Strait. He didn't like new country. He thought that was offensive. When Taylor Swift left country, Benji was like, she's dead to me. All right, you know? So like literally, one time he walked into a record shop and he walked over where all the Taylor Swift music was. He took it out of the country station and moved it to a different section. He was like, she's not allowed anymore. She's left country music. So Benji loved country music. He loved Jesus, Jesus first country. And he loved Alabama football. All right, and he was loud about all three. Everything that Benji loved, he was very, very loud about. And you could hear about it. But honestly, the loudest Benji ever was, was post his days here on earth. As loud as Benji was about his faith, as loud as Benji was about Jesus, as much as Benji was always a witness, nothing that he ever did and everything he ever did, he did with all caps and he did very brightly. Benji was neon in everything that he did. And all that he did, nothing came close to what happened after he passed. About nine years ago, Benji was diagnosed with cancer, and Benji went through those years. He went through surgery after surgery after surgery after surgery. 
Every time he'd go to the hospital, he'd see those nurses as an opportunity to witness. He'd see everybody as an opportunity to be about Jesus. And, and every time he'd go there, he, we would have worship teams come and literally be in his room and they would worship through the night and, and he'd have church service. And he'd, he was just such an incredible, bold witness. And, and he went from surgery to surgery. They would remove a tumor a couple of weeks. I mean, a couple of years later, the tumors would be back. They'd have another surgery, another surgery. And, and I remember like the fourth or fifth time we took him in to have more tumors removed. He was there for 41 days, so many different days where they would say he's not going to make it. But then Benji persevered and made it. In all of that, he never lost his faith. In all of that, he never lost his joy. In all of that, he would go through pain. He would go through hurting. He would go through tough nights. But I mean, when, when the squeeze was on, what was oozing out was just Benji's Bible verses and Benji's promises. And when hardship came, honestly, as hardship came, and, and he was having really, really, really hard days when his bones were hurting and his body was hurting, he became less and less a country music star, I mean fan, and less and less an Alabama fan. The things of this world were turning more and more earthly dim, but he became more and more intensified about his faith about Jesus. And one time they came to us and they said, look, um, the tumors are back and they're growing fast and there's no more surgeries to have. You need to have the tough conversation with Benji and tell him that he's going home. I sat down with Benji and uh, I'll never forget, we, my sister was with us and we said, Benji, we just wanna be honest with you. We wanna respect you and tell you that um, you know, you're gonna get to go see mom. My, my mom had passed away years ago and Benji always wept and loved his mama. You know, and um, he said, you're gonna finally get to see mom. And he was smart enough to know like that meant that, hey, I'm about to die. I remember the first thing he said was, uh, praise the Lord. <laughs> the second thing he said was, is this gonna hurt? And I said, buddy, we're gonna do everything we can to make it not hurt, to make you as comfortable as we can. And Benji just started to prepare to go home. I'll never forget one day we were sitting there and I asked him, I said, uh, Benji, who do you want to, to have at your memorial service? You know, being a guy who does what I do, I knew a lot of pastors and a lot of, Christian artists and stuff like that. And a lot of them, a lot of them love Benji. And so I was like, who do you want to do your memorial service? And uh, I was kind of hoping he'd say, you brother. But he goes, not you. <laughs> so I thought, who's he gonna say? Like, you know, Kevin Queen, Louis Giglio, who's he gonna get, you know? And he goes, I would like to do it. And I said, well, buddy, you're not gonna be here. He goes, well, get your camera, <laughs> get your phone. I mean, with no practice, I just turned the phone on and he just started talking and he said, showed them that. COVID was starting and people weren't able to gather together and we made that video. And when we made that video, he said, I, I just want people to hear. And all he talked about, he, wasn't, he didn't talk about himself. He didn't talk, he just talked about the Lord. He shared the gospel. And then he got done and I said, well, how would you like for us to invite people to your funeral? Because it's probably gonna be online, buddy, because uh, like this thing's going on with COVID and everything. And he goes, well, get your phone out. <laughs> And he wanted to invite everybody. And he said, the day I die, the morning that I die, he said, I want you to put this on Instagram. He said, and I want people to be invited. I'll invite them to my own funeral. And uh, this is his invitation. Woo! It feels good to be in heaven with God and my mom. I am free from pain. I am free from this life. You're welcome to join me if you like. But it's up to you. Are you welcoming people to your memorial service? Yes. And, and what do you want this to be about? 
I wonder if it could be about Jesus. And come, have some chips and French dip. Amen. And worship together? In heaven. Amen. I love you, buddy. Love you. Give mom a kiss for me in heaven, okay? All right. <laughs> and so, you know, if God's not real to you, that doesn't make him not real. Because God was real to Ben. And so to Ben, death was not something that took over his, his faith. Death was just one more step. Death was ultimate healing. Death was no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, no more restless nights. And it's just honestly, the patience that he had to endure through it all because he knew what was waiting for him at the end, the hope of heaven we call it, is that one day, one day, there'll be no doctor saying there's nothing we can do. And if you have that as your ultimate prize, then you run a race very differently in life. And some of you, look at me, to be very honest with you, you've put your faith, this is why you have no patience for the things of this world, you've put your faith in the things of this world, you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Which is why when your priorities are threatened because something bigger, something's playing a role bigger than God, then all of a sudden you're threatened. But if your faith is in Christ, then that exudes itself, not just in the victories that you have, but in the trials and the afflictions and the setbacks as well. So can I get you just wherever you are, just to pray with me just for a second and bow your heads with me. Can I just ask you this morning, who have you put your faith in? What's giving you the ability? Who is giving you the ability to be able to endure, sustain, maybe even through a season of long suffering. This morning, I gave you some examples of things that trigger our impatience. And they're things like going to the gas station and the card not working and having to go inside to pay for it or little trivial things here and there. But there are people hearing me today and, and you are going through cancer. You're going through the worst divorce. You're going through restless nights of a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter who's walked away from God and you're, you're terrified of what's gonna happen. You're going through a moment right now where, where even before the recession that's about to come probably, your boss has already let you go and you're unemployed. And right now, you're just, you don't even know where you're next. As winter comes, you don't know how you're gonna stay warm, where your next meal's gonna come from. And if you're in that moment, I know, in that moment when there's uncertainty, there's suffering, there's hardship, we're already emotionally at a six and something that's a four sets us off to act like it's a 10. But I just wanna remind you of the hope of heaven. That you win, you win at the end. And so because of that, in the moments where there's, where there's problems, we hang on to the promises so that we can have perseverance. And so Jesus, we thank you for that. We put our faith in you, not in ourselves, because we don't have what it takes on our own to persevere. We put our faith in you, Jesus. You're our firm foundation. You're our hope. You're our everything. You never let us down. We pray that you would give us what we need now, Holy Spirit, 
to, to, to say whatever we face tomorrow, it's bigger than us, but it's not bigger than you. We put our faith, our hope, our, our, our peace, our joy in no one else, but in the name above every name. And his name is, let's say it together, Jesus. Let's sing this together. I put my faith in